Why is life so hard? <laughs> Why is life so hard? Why is it hard to do the little things and the big things? Why is it hard to get out of bed in the morning? Especially on the Sunday where the time changes. Amen? Why is it hard to cook meals? Hard to do the laundry? Hard to solve problems? Hard to find enough money to pay our bills? Hard to raise children? Hard to love our spouse? Hard to love our roommate. Hard to keep a house or apartment or dorm room clean. Hard to make and live on a budget. Hard to figure out new software. Hard to, hard to stay focused when reading. Hard to mow grass, trim trees, plant flowers. Hard to exercise. Hard to come to church. Hard to get on an airplane and fly to Ukraine. Hard defines much of what we do, if not all of what we do at some level. If you guys could help me out, there's some, some feedback here, Justin, that's, that's kind of ringing in my ears. I don't know if you guys can hear that. <clears throat> Technology aims to make our lives easier, and in some sense it does, but why then is life still so hard when we live in a period of history that's seen the greatest proliferation of technology in the history of the world, why does life still strike us as painful at every level? I'm not suggesting that everything we do all the time is, is, is completely as bad as it could be. What I am suggesting is that everything we do, even the great fun things we do have a measure of pain. Even going on vacation is hard, right? Even going out to the side of the pool to sip your beverage of choice takes work. You have to get the towel and the beverage and the sunscreen. and like, It just takes work to even do something enjoyable. Everything has a measure of hardness. The lie of technology is that it will make our pain go away. Technology is everywhere, but toil remains. I'm not even mentioning yet the hard things we face on the interior of our lives. Why is it so hard to find the words that adequately describe what we feel? Why do we feel sad or angry or despairing and not even know why? Why do we have rage and restlessness and rebellion in our hearts? Things are hard on the exterior and the interior of our lives. Why? Why is life so hard? Well, Tim Keller helps us answer this question in a few lines. Let me read you what Dr. Keller says. He says, something is wrong, and we may know the effects... I just listed a whole bunch of the effects. But we fall short of understanding the true causes. Contemporary Western culture tries to account for this restlessness without recourse to the biblical doctrine of sin. Entertainment distracts us from our discomfort. 
doing good helps bolster our identity as a good person. But the Bible locates the root issue as our separation from God. End quote. In other words, try as hard as we may to escape or numb or minimize or ignore the pains of life. They persist nonetheless because the entire world groans under sin. Life is hard because of sin. Sin done by us, sin done to us, and the sin like a dark shadow that lays over the entire world, touching every single thing in it. Life is hard because of sin. Now, we've been studying Genesis chapter 3. I'd invite you to grab a copy of the Bible. There's some black pew Bibles in front of you if you need one. If you don't have a Bible, please take that home with you as our gift to you. Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible, tells us about the entrance of sin into the world. So far as we've studied this chapter together, we've seen the serpent, Satan himself, deceive the woman. And then we've seen a woman believe him and and disobey God. And then the man, her husband, Adam, followed her in her rebellion. Amazingly, we've seen that the Lord comes to Adam and Eve with questions about what they've done rather than threats. As God comes with his questions, instead of just answering with sheer honesty, they wiggle around the truth, minimize what they've done, though they do eventually get around to confessing their sin. And then, as we saw last week, the Lord speaks to the serpent, Satan. He doesn't ask the serpent any questions. There's no dialogue between him and the serpent. It's all punishment and no grace for Satan. The Lord says in verses 14 and 15 that the serpent will suffer the humiliation of defeat and be crushed by the seed of the woman. He will crawl and he will be crushed. Then, in verses 16 through 19 of Genesis 3, the Lord turns his attention to Adam and to Eve. So to the woman first and then to the man. And this will be our text for this morning. What we'll see is... Each person is punished according to what they did, and each receive consequences that involve a life function and a relationship. What do I mean? I mean that the, the woman will, will, will receive pain and childbearing, life function, and conflict with her husband, relational strife. So life function, relationship. The man will have pain in his work and will have conflict with his relationship with the ground. So pain in his work and conflict with the ground. Because of sin, there's conflict with Satan, conflict with the sexes, and conflict with the soil. Genesis 3 is perhaps the most relevant and practical text for us because it tells us why life is so hard. Why everywhere we look, there's some measure of conflict. Conflict with the powers of evil, conflict with other people, conflict with the ground. Last week we looked at the conflict with Satan. This week we'll look at the conflict between man and woman, the conflict between man and the ground. These verses that we'll look at this morning, verses 16 through 19, tell us why life's two greatest tasks, love and work, are so hard. 
So interestingly, if you boil these verses down, the, the judgment towards the woman and the judgment towards the man, it really boils down to pain in love and pain in work. And these verses, again, are very relevant because all of us have relationships. Many of us, if not most of us, will indeed be married one day. This tells us why there's pain in those relationships. And then also, correspondingly, these verses tell us why there's pain in our work. Pain in what we do with the most, most of our hours on planet Earth. So our text this morning tells us about the origin of this pain and life's two great pursuits. Pain in love and pain in work. Those are our two points this morning. Verse 16, pain in love. Verses 17 through 19, pain and work. There is hope, but you have to wait for the end. First, we need to just follow the pattern of Scripture and see what the Bible says, and then we'll see how all of this will indeed point to hope and redemption and glory. First, number one, there's pain and love. Verse 16. Verse 16. To the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So verse 16, we learn that Eve's sin will result in pain and childbearing and in conflict with her husband. In this fallen world, there will be pain and love. As I said last week, there are no curses against Adam and Eve. Only on the serpent and on the ground. Verse 14, to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock. Verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. So this implies that their, God's blessing is still available or possible for Adam and Eve. God's blessing hasn't been utterly lost for Adam and Eve. Biblical scholar James Hamilton says, quote, Rather than being cursed directly, the man and the woman have their roles made more difficult. In other words, instead of being cursed, like God curses the serpent and God curses the ground, rather, He makes their lives full of difficulty. Man and woman and their sentences take the form of a disruption of their appointed roles. God made the woman to help the man, and they together were to be fruitful and multiply. Verse 15 says they will multiply, they will have offspring, and that offspring will crush the serpent's head. But then the very next verse, verse 16, says that the woman must have that offspring, must bear that seed in pain. Two times in verse 16, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. This word can mean sorrow or travail. Interestingly, in our English vocabulary, we use the same word labor. We use the same word to describe what women go into when they're about to have a baby and what we do at work. Labor. And it's based in this word, which means travail or sorrow, pain, agony. The perpetuation of the human race will only come through agony and suffering. Every woman who's given birth to children says, Amen. Even Nowadays, though, the pain of childbirth, childbirth is unrelieved by modern medicine. Epidurals may help, but the pain persists. Watching my wife 
suffer through giving birth and having C-sections and then recovering for weeks and weeks from those C-sections, watching her courage and diligence and just to- high tolerance for pain has um, put me to shame in some sense. I have like no tolerance of pain. I get a headache and I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going to die, you know. Watching Susie bring our three children into the world has shown me just not only how tough she is, but how agonizing the consequences of sin are. Don't hear this, though, as saying that children are Eve's punishment. Children are not the punishment. Pain is the punishment. Children, according to chapter 1, verse 28, is part of God's blessing And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So over here, when God starts starts levying out the consequences for their sins, don't be misled to think that the children themselves are the punishment. They are not. It's the pain it takes to bring them into the world that is. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children Now that brings us to the second part of verse 16. There's been some debate on the exact meaning of this last part of verse 16. One of the most basic rules of hermeneutics or the science of interpreting the Bible is that you you let the clearer parts of the Bible help you understand the less clear parts of the Bible. This verse provides us with an opportunity to do just that. This word here in Verse 16, your desire, that word desire, is only found three times in the Hebrew Bible. Here, chapter 4, verse 7, and then Song of Solomon, 7.10. So, it would be helpful, I think, for us to look in this context, this very context, where the writer Moses uses the same word over in chapter 4, verse 7, because that verse is going to be clearer than this verse, I think. It will help us understand 3.16. In other words, the clear meaning of 4-7 will illuminate the less clear meaning of 3-16. Genesis chapter 4, we'll get to this in a couple weeks. Cain is rejected by God. He's seething with anger. The Lord comes to Cain and tells him that in his anger, he's easy prey for sin that's crouching like a lion, waiting to jump on him. But he must fight back. He must turn the tables and rule over his sin. Verse 6, chapter 4, verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. There's that word, desire. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So sin wants to master Cain, but Cain must master sin. This is the plain meaning of 4-7, and then it helps us understand 3 16. In a similar way, in 3.16, after the fall, Eve's desire is to master Adam. And Adam will want to master her. There will be a struggle for mastery between the sexes, specifically between husbands and wives. So this connection to 4.7 suggests, interesting, interestingly, that marriage will become like jungle warfare. That's the image in chapter 4, verse 7. Sin is crouching at the door and wants to master you. What is he talking about? A particular animal, what crouches and wants to pounce? Lions. Lions. 
or tigers, I guess, any sort of feline creature. So, maybe dinosaurs. So, he's talking about an animal that wants to pounce, sin, like an animal, wants to pounce on Cain and master, but Cain must master that animal. (laughs) This is the word that God uses to describe marriage after the fall. Your desire shall be for your husband. And he shall rule over you. This desire for her husband, by the way, isn't some kind of new sexual desire. They already had that. She already had that before the fall. This desire is something else. It's a desire for independence. It's a desire to live life on her own terms with no regard for the leadership of her husband. She'll attempt to, and she'll be, she'll be tempted to control her husband to manipulate, perhaps even threaten her husband, even abuse her husband. Eve will not be content to joyfully, joyfully live under the protective rule and security of her husband. After sin, as one commentator says, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. Yes, no doubt, there are wonderful marriages in the world, even among unbelievers. There are beautiful marriages even within our own church. This, the doctrine of sin, the biblical doctrine of sin, doesn't mean that things are as bad as they could be everywhere all the time. There are beautiful marriages in the world. What this text does mean is that there is like a gravitational pull towards the woman usurping the man's authority and the man treating the woman with brutality. Using this text, some scholars have argued that the idea of male leadership or male headship in marriage is a result of sin. In other words, some even evangelical scholars would say, you know, this idea of there being Equality in the home with different roles, that's actually an idea that came into being because of sin. But if you'll remember several weeks or months ago when we studied the end of Genesis 2, I pointed out how the man's headship in the home is woven into the very fabric of creation. I pointed out how God designed things like this before sin came into the world. I said there were several pointers in this direction at the end of Genesis 2. I'll give you several of them. First, we saw that man was created first and then woman. Man received God's word and then was told to pass it along. Man was told to name the animals, not woman. Woman is called man's helper. Man and woman were created in different ways. Man was formed from the dust. Woman was formed from the man. So before sin even comes into the world, before Genesis 3 even happens, God made the woman from the man and for the man. So if you want to argue that male headship only shows up after sin enters the world, you have to ignore lots of clear evidence in Genesis 2 to the contrary. Men joyfully and humbly leading their homes was God's intention before sin plagued everything. This text goes on to say that the husband will rule over you. The husband will rule over the wife. 
God is telling Eve, you will want to control your husband, but he must not allow you to have your way with him. He must not allow you to rule over him. He must lead you. God is even saying to the man, Adam is listening to this. There are many Adams in the room today, many men, many husbands listening today. He's saying to us, you must not buckle under the ungodly pressure of your wife. You must lead your wife. You must be the head of your wife. God designed you to be the head. You must be the head. So coming home at the end of the day and laying on the couch and eating Cheetos and playing video games is not what God intends for us, men, husbands. We're called to lead. We're called to give up our lives for the good and the joy of our wives and our families. This ruling, now this, we don't like, we, we read a, a word like rule and we automatically import some meaning there. Like, well, rule means subjugation and harsh exploitation. That's not what is happening here. That's not what the word means. Rule here is the exercise of godly authority, godly headship. Can authority be used wrongly? Yes, more on that in a moment. But authority in and of itself is not wrong. Many of us know this by experience. Maybe in high school we had a coach or a teacher, maybe a mentor, who just loved us and trained us and helped us in profound ways. They had a measure of authority in our lives. And that authority was used for our flourishing. Now, we've also had experiences where people in authoritative roles have used that authority to, you know, pin us down under their thumb and to tear us down rather than build us up. So this idea of a husband leading, a husband ruling, is not inherently bad. Rule doesn't mean harsh Exploitive subjugation, which unfortunately has characterized the plight of women for thousands of years. As we're coming to the end of Genesis 3, we're about to see Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden. I felt it would be fun to read John Steinbeck's novel, East of Eden. East of Eden? Anybody read it? No? Okay, cool. In it, Steinbeck, he's portraying, he's really giving us kind of an allegory of Genesis 3 and then 4 with Cain and Abel. And the, the whole book takes place on the, on the western frontier of America at the end of the 19th century. And as I've read the first part of the novel, it's just struck me how women were viewed by men at the end of the 19th century. After the main character's Cyrus Trask is his name. After his wife commits suicide because of her husband's infidelity, he quickly finds a 17-year-old girl to replace her within a month. Steinbeck describes why Cyrus married so quickly. He says, Cyrus wanted a woman to take care of his baby son, Adam. He needed someone to keep house and cook, and a servant cost money. He was a vigorous man and needed the body of a woman, and that too cost money unless you were married to it. Within two weeks, Cyrus had wooed, wedded, bedded, and impregnated her. His neighbors did not find his action hasty. It was quite normal in that day for a man to use up three or four wives in a normal lifetime. Cyrus's wife never said anything unless she was asked. From Cyrus's point of view, this was probably the greatest of her virtues. End quote. Please hear me clearly. 
this kind of subjugation and exploitation and harshness is evil. It's not wrong or woke to speak against the mistreatment and abuse of women. Bible-loving men should be the first ones to say that women are more than the services they can provide. The Bible says that women are co-heirs in the grace of life and co-rulers of God's world. God made woman to help the man, not to be his slave. The church of Jesus Christ of all places should be full of men who honor and cherish and protect and provide for and love and serve women made in the image of God. The mistreatment of women is and should find no home in the church of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the mistreatment of women by men is one reason feminism has spread throughout our culture Broadly defined, this is the idea that there are no differences, biologically or otherwise. There are, everyone is inherently and essentially the same with their nature ontologically and their roles. Biblically, that's going too far. And Ray Ortland, in his excellent essay on the exegesis of Genesis 1-3, through he says, While many women today need release from male domination... The liberating alternative is not female rivalry or autonomy, but male headship wedded to female help. Ortland says, Christian redemption does not redefine creation. It restores creation so that wives learn godly submission and husbands learn godly headship. In other words, Christian theology and Christian teaching is meant to take us back to the garden where men and women lived in equal with equality before God, yet with different roles. To say that someone has a different role than you does not logically infer that they are inferior than you. That's terrible logic. To say that someone has a different role just means that they have a different role. That's all it means. So the mistreatment of women that has plagued generations of mankind is abominable to God, has no home in the church of Jesus Christ. And Bible-loving men should be the first ones to say so. And we should seek to reverse the trend in our culture through loving and leading our wives with joyful, humble, sacrificial leadership. So when it says that Adam, the end of verse 16 will rule over Eve, it doesn't mean that husbands have license to abuse or mistreat or ignore the thoughts and opinions, the hopes and dreams of their wives. It simply means that men must take up the mantle of headship in the home. Ladies, sisters in Christ, if, excuse me, if you're in an abusive relationship, please tell someone. You don't have to suffer in silence. Jesus Christ can heal you. The church can be a home for you. There's help for you if you are indeed being mistreated.
Verse 16 is made plain for us that Eve's sin, the consequences for Eve's sin, first relate to her children. She'll have pain and childbearing. And then to her husband. She'll have conflict with her husband. What woman was to do and be, be as a blessing is now tainted by sin. There will be pain and love. But interestingly, if you connect verse 16 back to verse 15, this reminds the woman not to lose hope. Verse 15, I will put enmity between the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This means that the woman will have offspring. Childbearing was the center of God's blessing, chapter 1, verse 28. After the fall, childbearing is again the means by which God's blessing will be restored. Through the birth of a child, the serpent will be destroyed. Birth pains are meant to remind woman of her sin, but also remind woman of her redemption. Her pain will show her her need. This is probably what Paul means when he tells Timothy that the woman will be saved through childbearing in 1 Timothy 2.15. Pain in childbirth reminds the woman of her sin and reminds the woman of God's salvation that has come through the seed of the woman. Because of sin, there is pain in love. The most basic and fundamental relationships in our lives are marked with pain and conflict and agony. That's number one. Number two, there is pain in work. This is verses 17 through 19. Pain in work, 17 through 19. To Adam... He said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam's sin is going to result in pain in his work and conflict with the ground. The most time-consuming task of our lives, our work, will be marked with pain. Amen? <laughs> the most time-consuming task of our lives is marked with pain. In this fallen world, there is pain in work. But again, notice that work itself is not Adam's punishment just as having children wasn't Eve's punishment. Both children and work were pre-fall realities, good gifts from the Lord to His image bearers. The punishment is pain. At the beginning of verse 17, God says the rationale for Adam's punishment is that he, he did two things. He says, first, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and then secondly, you've broken my command. I said... Not, not to eat of this tree, and you did eat of it. So God gives two reasons why Adam is being punished the way he is. Interestingly, the first reason goes back to some things I just got done saying. Adam abandoned his role as head of the family. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife. Listen to the voice of is a Hebrew idiom for obey. So Adam's fundamental mistake was that he obeyed Eve rather than obeying God. And this doesn't mean that husbands shouldn't earnestly seek and listen to the counsel of their wives. Only a foolish husband would make decisions without carefully considering the thoughts of his wife. Adam's mistake was that instead of protecting her, 
He went along with her into sin. He doesn't address Eve this way. He doesn't say to Eve, because you have listened to your husband. Why? Because the pivotal factor in the fall was not Eve's disobedience, but Adam's disobedience. This is why when God comes into the garden, he comes looking for Adam first, not Eve. God says to Adam, it's because of you that the ground is cursed. There later in verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you, Adam. He doesn't say it's cursed because of you and Eve. Adam bears primary responsibility for what happens. That's likely why his punishment is about three times longer, verses 17 through 19, than Eve's is in verse 16. Notice again, though, in verse 17, that God's curse falls on man's realm, not on man himself. Cursed is the ground because of you. He doesn't say cursed are you, Adam, but cursed is the ground because of you. Work itself isn't a curse, but because of sin, it's now painful toil. The ground will be Adam's enemy rather than his servant. The consequences for Adam and Eve are directed at their points of highest fulfillment. Think of this. For woman, it's in her capacity as mother and wife. That's where she'll find most pain. And then for man, it's in his capacity as breadwinner and provider. That's where he'll find the most pain. Adam will struggle to provide the bread that he and his family need to live. How painful. Can you imagine having, having lived in paradise for who knows how long they were there, but even if they were just for a day, can you imagine how painful it would have been for Adam to leave paradise and then live with all these memories of the lush and abundant garden that they had? Having to live with the agony of wondering how he'll provide for his family. This agony that followed him for the rest of his life. This agony that follows every good husband today. How will my family eat? Adam's sin spoiled Adam and Adam's environment. Verse 18 says he's going to be surrounded by thorns and thistles. He'll eat the plants of the field instead of the fruit of the garden. He'll live the rest of his life as a toiling farmer trying to eke out a living while battling the elements. Interestingly, in verse 19, it says, By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. In other words, you're only going to eat after you've suffered. <laughs> By the sweat of your face, then you can eat. Like Eve, his pain is meant to be a perpetual reminder of sin's rewards. Pain, sweat, and dust are the result of chasing the satanic fantasy of being like God. I wonder, friends, brothers and sisters, who here today may be chasing the satanic fantasy that if you, if you could just live life on your own terms, just do whatever you want to do, how you want to do it, when you want to do it, who you want to do it with, if you could just live your life on your terms, then you'll find joy and blessing and prosperity and abundance. If you're thinking that way, I assure you, you may find a measure of temporal happiness, but in the long run, it will not go well for you. Because it's not the way God wired the universe to work. Only when we humbly submit our lives to the rule the good and wise reign of God will we find an abundant and joy-filled, though marked with suffering, life. I wonder how many might be chasing the satanic fantasy of being like God and are 
eating the fruits of your labor, pain, sweat, and dust. Now this curse, of course, falls on all of us. This curse on the ground falls on all of us. This farming imagery would have made sense to the first hearers of this book. But farming is used as a picture of all kinds of labor, all kinds of work. Anything we have to do to support ourselves, to get food, to live. This is why work is often fruitless and pointless for all of us. And I want to spend a little bit of time on this. I think it's important often for me and your elders to talk about work. Because again, it's the thing we do with the most of our time in our lives. So I want us to have a good biblical understanding of work. So I'm going to take just a moment on this. Work is often fruitless. Tim Keller describes fruitlessness in work like this. He says, in all our work, we will be able to envision far more than we can accomplish. (laughs) Amen? We can envision far more than we can accomplish, both because of a lack of ability and because of resistance in the environment around us. The experience of work will include pain, conflict, envy, and fatigue, and not all our goals will be met. For example, he says, you may have an aspiration to do a certain kind of work and perform at a certain level of skill and quality, but you may never even get the opportunity to do the work you want. Or if you do, you may not be able to do it as well as it needs to be done. Even during times when we're satisfied with the quality of our work, we may be bitterly disappointed with the results. Keller goes on to talk about how our grandparents and great-grandparents who lived through the Depression and two world world wars were grateful to have a job of any kind as long as it paid the bill. If you guys knew your grandparents, you knew them well enough to kind of know what they thought about work, I'll tell you, my grandparents, what they knew, what they taught me is you just work because work is what you're supposed to do because work is what, work, work is what feeds you. You know, it, was, it wasn't this idea of, hey, per, they never had that sit down and, hey, let's talk about pursuing your dreams conversation. By their example and through their words, they taught me and probably many of you that you simply work to eat. Now that compares, that compares and contrasts to our generation that insists, insists that, that work, work must be fulfilling and fruitful, that it must perfectly match our talents and dreams. Now it's true that our grandparents perhaps had a lower view of work than the one fi- found in the Bible. It is okay to pursue work that cultivates and creates and blesses the world. But as Keller says, our generation has a more naive and utopian view of work than is suggested by the Bible. In other words, the Bible says plainly that all of our work will be tainted by sin. Yes, the Bible says that God made us to cultivate his world, to make something beautiful out of what he's made. But the Bible also says that the ground is cursed. So work will always be painful toil. This is why you should expect to be regularly frustrated even if you have your dream job. This means that when it's time to pick a job, we should be both optimistic and realistic. Knowing that our work can be both rewarding and frustrating at the same time. You guys have experienced this probably. Your job can be super rewarding and super frustrating. Sometimes on the same day, on the same phone call, on the same meeting. 
often, though, I think in our generation, we lean to this more idealized version of work. We're overly optimistic and self-centered when it comes to finding a job, keeping a job, and working. Something we all have to do throughout our lives. I found the little book, The Gospel at Work, which is in our church library. This little book called The Gospel at Work by Sebastian Traeger and Greg Gilbert. Super helpful in this count. They propose asking these six questions when it comes time to choose a job. I'm just wondering, think, think in your head right now. Don't say it out loud, but what's the number one question that you think you should ask when you're trying to find a job? Don't say it out loud, but just think just for a moment. What's the number one question you should ask when you're looking for a job? This is not inerrant, but I think their list is helpful. Here's how they list their six questions. Number one, does this job glorify God? Number two, does this job permit me to live a godly life? So, for example, does this job require that I miss church every week? That's a question worth asking. Number three, does this job provide for my needs and allow me to be a blessing to others? In other words, does this job pay my bills? That's not an unspiritual question. The Bible literally says the man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So it actually is about the money in a sense. Does this job allow me to provide for my needs and be a blessing to others? Fourth, does this job benefit society in some way? Fifth, does this job take advantage of my gifts and talents? And sixth, and finally, is this job something I want to do? You see how they kind of inverted where we would normally start? We, I think all of that, no, I've done this. We start with number six. Is this job something I want to do? We start with self rather than God. So when it comes time to choose a job, we should begin with God and then work from there, not not begin with ourselves. We should realize that every job will be both rewarding and frustrating because of sin. We should remember that God made us to work and that there will be toil in our work no matter what we do, even if we have our dream job. Now, to make matters even more grim, if you'll look at the end of verse 19, God literally tells Adam, he says, hey, you're going to work, and then you're going to (laughs) die. That's what he says, verse 19. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So Adam's situation in toil wasn't, going to just be for a season. Adam's situation of toil was going to be a permanent one. Relief would only come for Adam when he died. We often think, if I can just get a better job, if I could get that raise, if I could, get, if I could retire, if I could get that house, if I could just get that, then life will be easier. No, it won't. There may be some measure of the way the Lord helps and provides, no doubt. He does that throughout our lives. But life will never be 
flat out easy in a world under sin. In this life, we'll never be free from fatigue and toil. We will work, and then we will return to the dust. I told you the picture was grim. But there is hope for us. We'll get to the ultimate hope in just a minute. But in the meantime, the Lord has given us grace to make it through the toilsome realities of our lives. I think that this reality of the pain that we experience in work makes the discipline of rest all the more important. And I make no apologies for being an evangelist for rest. My sabbatical last summer changed my life. Thank you, church. Again, thank you. I was pushing too hard, too fast, doing too much, not even realizing what it was doing to me, my family, my wife. This text says that you're going to literally work yourself into the ground one way or the other. On the way there, God has given us a gift of grace to ease our burdens, to sustain our souls, heal our bodies, and calm our hearts. It's called the Sabbath. It's a blessed and holy day, chapter 2, verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. He told Moses to tell Israel that on the seventh day you shall not do any work. He says, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest so that you may be refreshed. God wants there to be refreshment mingled in with your toil. Brothers and sisters, please hear me. You will reap what you sow. If you sow a life of incessant work with no routine of regular rest, you will reap a life of exhaustion, Anxiety, depression, fatigue, health problems, lower levels of productivity, lack of depth with the Lord, lack of depth with those closest to you. So in kindness, God has come to us in our toil and He's given us a gift that's literally made the top ten of His top ten rules. God has given us a gift and a command to keep us going while we go with Him on this journey home. Those who receive this gift Taste something of home here. Those who don't regularly rest only have toil to look forward to. So why not toil for six days and rest for one? I know that work is hard. It's hard for everybody. But God in mercy says, hey, I have something for you that will help you get through the toilsome nature of your work. It's a gift. Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He, God literally made this to give you. Hey, please, use this. It's for your refreshments, for your good. You're like, oh, I'm young, I'm strong, I'm healthy. Okay, you may be, but set a pattern now where you take a full day off to rest with and for the Lord. To put all work, paid and unpaid, aside. You're like, John, I have small kids. I do too. We don't lock them in the closet on our Sabbath. But there are this, God has created the church to be a family, to be a place where we can find help to, to work through these things. There are ways to rest if you'll think and pray and get counsel. Friends, what do you have to lose? 
What do you have to lose? Yeah, I know we could all die tomorrow. I get that. But on the way back to the dust, I want to live as as passionately and zealously as I can for the Lord Jesus. And one of the ways that's going to happen, one of the ways His grace is going to be kind of infused into my life is through regular patterns of rest. If I don't do that, I'm going to burn out. I'm going to be cranky. I'm going to sin. I'm going to live in secret. I'm going to do all kinds of things that are going to destroy my life, my marriage, my family, my ministry. I don't know if you can tell, but I'm passionate about this. You should work your tail off for six days. Don't be a lazy bum. Right? But on the Sabbath. I don't mean like binge your favorite Netflix show. That's not rest. That's idleness. Do things that refresh you. What refreshes your soul and your body? Whatever it is. For me, it's crazy stuff like running. Whatever refreshes you, do that. It was made for your refreshment. Isn't God kind to give us the grace of rest? in the middle of so much toil. God tells Adam that he'll work until he dies. And when he dies, he'll turn to dust. His death is described as a reversal of the creation process. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam's name literally means dirt or dust. So his name is a perpetual reminder of his destiny and ours. Despite the advances in medicine or cosmetology, every opened casket proves the truth of this statement. For you are dust. The Bible uses images like this to make sure we understand how transient our lives are. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says, You return man to dust and say, Return, O children of man. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. In light of this, the psalmist says, we should ask God to teach us to number our days, that we may get a heart of wisdom. In other words, wise people understand that they will soon be dead. They understand that this life flies by, then we fly to God to give an account for the life He gave us. So wise people order their lives accordingly. They make every effort to know and follow and obey God. To serve others with sacrificial love. To invest whatever material wealth they have in the only kingdom that will last forever. Teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Again, the end of verse 19 says that man will ultimately be defeated by work as the ground will eventually swallow him up in death. Excuse me, but even in the middle of this punishment, there's God's provision. Verse 18 says there's going to be thorns, but it also says there's going to be food. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat. So work will be painful, but it will bear some fruit. Man and woman will eat. And they will have offspring. And that offspring will defeat the serpent. Evil and pain will follow man and woman around in the world, but they won't stalk them forever. Interestingly, in a couple chapters, we're going to see Lamech, Noah's dad, say this. Look at chapter 5, verse 28. 
When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Lamech thinks that Noah will be the one who will undo the curse of the ground, bring humanity relief. Every generation since then has longed for what Lamech longed for, longed for the conflict with evil, the conflict between the sexes, the conflict with the ground to be over. Paul says, as Stephanie read earlier in Romans 8, that the whole creation groans for this new era of blessing. And we wonder... Maybe some of you are new to the faith and you're, you're just this, maybe just now asking questions about Christianity. Like, is the Bible true? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Maybe you're, is, is there ever going to be anything better than what we see in the world today? Will this world always be what it is now? Maybe, maybe you wonder. Maybe you even believe that pain will win the day. Maybe you're convinced that sin and Satan and death are all we have to look forward to. We wonder, will God ever overturn the curse? Will God ever bless the world again? Well, spoiler alert, in Genesis 12, he says he will. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 says this. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promises Abraham seed Land and blessing. The promise of seed overcomes the difficulty of childbearing. The promise of land hints that God will once again live in a place with his people. The promise of blessing means that the curse won't last forever. That the seed of the serpent will be crushed through the seed of the woman. Remarkably, it says in verse 3 that this promise of blessing is for the whole world. All the families of the earth will be blessed through Abram. These promises are what feed the hopes of all who follow in the footsteps of Abraham's faith. Pain and love and pain and work won't have the last word. Our deepest longings in our relationships and in our work will be satisfied in God's future. There will be a day when there are relationships without conflict and work without toil in the paradise of the future just as there was in the paradise of the past. So we don't have to be ultimately discouraged in our relationships or our work because we know that this world is not our final home. We remember this reality every Christmas when we sing or random Sundays in March. We sing, no more let sins or sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. Far as, far as the curse is found. God will make good on his word. He will come again. He will swallow up all our pain in love, all our pain in work, set us free from toil in relationships, free from toil in work, and bring us into a garden of abundance once again. These promises are for everyone who believes in the seed of the woman, the offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ, turns away from their sins and they say, Lord Jesus, you are now my king, my Lord, my greatest treasure, my only hope. 
Everyone who looks at Christ as their only hope of blessing in the future gets blessing in the future. Those who believe that Jesus toiled on the cross for their rest, that His pain was to take their punishment, that they deserve punishment, but that He took it for them. Those people who believe that and embrace it and give their lives for it will one day live in a land, will love and work, will be blessed and not cursed. Can you imagine living in a land where all of our relationships and all of our work is blessed and blessed and continually blessed with no sign of cursing? This is the lot, this is the hope for those trusting in the one who crushes the seed of the serpent, the offspring of Abraham. Pain. Pain may be our punishment now, but rest will one day be our reward. Friends, do you have assurance that this rest is yours? Is this rest yours? Or are you just trying your best and hoping that God blesses you in the future? Or have you looked away from yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ where you'll find every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? Those who do receive eternal rest as their reward. If you'd like to know more about what it means to be a Christian, what following Jesus looks like, Talk to the person you came with. Grab me in the foyer afterwards. We would love to speak with you more about these things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, please take what we've learned together and write it on our hearts. Father, whatever I've said that's not according to your word, would you remove it? Whatever thing we need to take from here, please help us to take them, to think on them, to do them. Increase our hope. Increase our hope. Who hopes in what he sees? <laughs> if he sees it already, it's not hope. Lord, we long for a world where the curse is lifted and the only thing we see is blessing. Lord Jesus, offspring of the woman, offspring of Abraham, son of David, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Rescue us. Bring us home. I pray for those in this room who, who have questions, who are struggling to know you and to know whether you're true. Father, grant them faith. Grant them the hope that can only, only be found in Jesus Christ. Father, help us as we toil. Help us to rest in Christ. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Before we